catching you up on the latest stories that you should know heading into this Friday morning, April 21st. I'm Jake Reyes, and this is The Point from WUFT News. Picture this. You're seeking wellness care from your doctor. Whether it's for your mental health or overall well-being, you're looking to improve your condition. The doctor returns, and they prescribe you art as a form of medicine. Literally, your prescription is to visit an art gallery, for example. Researchers at the University of Florida launched a pilot program that connects patients to arts and cultural activities as parts of their healing. The program is one way researchers are analyzing how social prescribing can be beneficial in improving one's health. I spoke with research director of UF's Center for Arts and Medicine, Jill Sankey, about what she was able to find in the research and how these activities help our well-being. So social prescribing is a system wherein care providers can prescribe or refer arts and cultural and social activities for the health of their patients. So it's very much oriented around the social determinants of health recognizing that there are resources that generate health that are not always linked to the health system. So broadly speaking, social prescribing isn't just about arts and culture. Um, it's about things like housing and food access and transportation and other, uh, other factors that, that can help determine health outcomes at the individual and population level. In many parts of the world where social prescribing has been Im implemented, Arts and cultural activities and resources are very central because they're available in communities. They're, they're hyper-local resources, like there's stuff down the street, you know, or, or, or down the block. And they're less risky, they're less costly than some other interventions that aren't always needed when someone first presents maybe low levels of depression. Um, so it's a very practical approach and doing so at a very hyper-local level. All right. And tell me about your research. What were you able to find? Yeah. So in research that we've conducted in the EpiArts lab, we've found some pretty compelling associations between arts participation and an array of health outcomes. Um, for instance, we found that adults over the age of 50 who participate in receptive arts activities, things like going to theater, a concert, a museum, a gallery, just once a month or more, are 84% more likely to report healthy aging two years later over time. So that means healthy aging um, is defined as an, the absence of a chronic disease and good mental and physical and cognitive health. And there's a strong association at four years as well. Uh, similarly, young people, adolescents who participate regularly in creative activities and in the arts are less likely to engage in reportedly antisocial or illegalized behaviors. Across the lifespan, we're seeing pretty compelling associations between participating in the arts, doing creative things, both receptively and actively, and health. And then so how does that compare with actual medicine like that you would take over the counter or prescription medicine? So social prescribing doesn't suggest that we should call on arts or cultural or social activities instead of medicine. Often, you know, both 
are needed and both can be helpful. So it really is up to the care providers who are referring to determine what's needed, of course. But if we broaden that toolkit, we can take a situation wherein a health provider is, you know, thinking of the things that insurance companies will pay for, like medicine and other therapies. Um, and we broaden that to a menu that allows them to suggest, well, I think you should take a dance class or you should join a walking group or join a choir. Um, that allows them to provide opportunities for interventions that are less risky, less costly, that are fun, um, and that people may be more likely to adhere to. And they can fill a gap, you know, in that way, in the way that we provide care. Not everyone who comes into a, a doctor's office just not feeling great, you know, needs medicine. And this offers physicians and other care providers a broader menu of options to offer for people before they, you know, enter into more risky and costly interventions. Got it. And so what are some of those challenges, I guess, in prescribing these social programs? Like, what are some of the difficulties? Is it, could it be like a cost thing, a financial thing? Just like walk me through that. So there are some, some challenges to implementing social prescribing, particularly in the United States, where we have a third-party payer system. In many of the countries where social prescribing exists, there are public health care systems. And so, for example, in the United Kingdom, the National Health Service pays for arts and cultural and social activities through pro social prescribing like they do other medical interventions. It's national policy and it's, it's implemented throughout the country. And that's true in other countries. In the United States, it's not yet policy, of course. It's not yet a system, but there are at least 25 pilots happening around the country. And those pilot programs are approaching the financial component in different ways. In some programs, like in the state of Massachusetts, the um, Arts Council funded a statewide pilot, and 12 programs were developed there. Arts funding was also used in Florida. There's a for-profit model happening in Atlanta, which is very exciting. There are some within health system pro, uh, pilots happening, like within VA systems. So right now, we're seeing a lot of um, innovation happening in how social prescribing is paid for. I believe that at its best, social prescribing is a systems alignment approach where existing resources can be used to ensure that people have access to arts and cultural and social resources as health resources. So we're seeing some uh, pilots like in New Jersey where, where Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield is a partner and they are funding these interventions and their pilot program with the New Jersey Performing Arts Center, that to me is a very exciting pilot because the insurance system is a part of the innovation there. That's really exciting. Um, so, of course, the financial models are one of the challenges. Who will pay for it is one of the questions. Okay. So, and now I just want to uh, talk about you a little bit. So, why did you take part in this research? Is there anything that made you curious or, or something that prompted you to pursue this? I have been researching arts and health for about 20 years. I've uh, been very curious based on my own personal experience of how important dancing and music are to my own well-being. I've been very curious about how engagement in the arts can impact our health, both individually and collectively. 
Um, over the past 10 years, I've been working more in public health, um, doing more research at the population level. And three years ago, when we established the EpiArts Lab at the University of Florida, I was able to lean more fully into population level health research. We're very fortunate to partner in the EpiArts Lab with Dr. Daisy Fancourt at University College London. Um, Dr. Fancourt has led this area of work for over a decade in the United Kingdom, and her work has contributed to the establishment and advancement of social prescribing there and in other parts of the world. So it's just a big curiosity of mine. I mean, I sort of live it as my own experience. I, I dance, I play music almost every day, and I feel immediate impacts on my health. And I feel that those are, are things that I do like exercising, you know, like eating well, like wearing a seatbelt that I know are just good for my health. Um, so I'm really interested in how we can measure this thing that that seems hard to measure. Often people think of experiences like the arts and, and spiritual experiences, you know, they're just immeasurable. We know they're good, but they're just, we can't measure them. We actually can measure them. Um, and many researchers in the United States and in other parts of the world have been advancing um, methods for researching the the value of the arts and so i'm really excited to be a part of that um, that community that's that's really helping us in the united states recognize that creativity in the arts are available resources for our health many other cultures know that so much better than we do um, so i'm really excited to to be a part of that research that can help us utilize the arts uh, to advance our health both individually and collectively That was Research Director of U.S. Center for Arts and Medicine, Jill Sonke, on how social prescribing can benefit the overall well-being of someone who seeks care. Now, let's catch you up on the latest stories from around the state. A bill ending diversity, equity, and inclusion programs in universities is headed to the Florida Senate. WUSF is reporting SB 266 also has reignited a debate about academic freedom on campuses in part because it could lead to changes related to general core courses. The Republican-controlled Senate Fiscal Policy Committee approved the proposal Thursday after an hours-long debate. Some Republicans argue DEI initiatives are discriminatory, while some Democrats say the proposal is racist at its core. And in other news, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill eliminating a requirement for unanimous jury recommendations before judges can impose death sentences Thursday. News Service of Florida reports SB 450 will allow death sentences to be imposed based on the recommendations of 8 of 12 jurors. The change affects only the sentencing process and not what is known as the guilt phase of murder cases. Juries will still have to be unanimous in finding the defendants guilty before sentencing could begin. And Florida lawmakers are considering a bill that will modify regulations around hemp-derived products. According to WMFE, President of American Healthy Alternatives Association J.D. McCormick says SB 1676 has been modified to take a language that could have harmed the multi-billion dollar industry in Florida. McCormick says the bill has been amended to remove the milligram caps initially proposed and the bill will no longer have much of an effect on the industry. Subscribe to The Point newsletter, which drops the latest stories into your inbox Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. Visit wuft.org to subscribe and view the most recent issues. 
I'm Jake Reyes, and you've been listening to The Point from WUFT News out of the University of Florida's College of Journalism and Communications. Have a great day.